You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 100 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined by the uh, co-founder and co-host of the podcast, and that's Jeremy Paxton. Uh, Jeremy, when we started this podcast back in what august 2015 did you ever think that we would make it to 100 episodes oh absolutely not no i i thought this would uh given the uh, circumstances around where how we started just doing it kind of off the cuff with like iphone microphones i, I had wait, no wait, wait wait you started with an iphone microphone i absolutely did oh my i started God, I didn't even on know my that. started on my bed with an iphone microphone i think i i forget how like how many i had a glass of wine so i was so anxious and yeah, I, I, th- I thought we would make it for maybe six months and then just be like, yeah, it was just fun. We all got closer as friends and that be it. But I cannot be more excited about our 100th episode. It's crazy to think we uh, started this so long ago. Now it's 2017, year and a half in, almost two years, really, because August is right around the corner. And uh, yeah, it's just it's crazy to see where this has gone. It's, it's been a lot of fun and uh, I'm excited about it. And uh, to kind of share in the excitement, we have uh, two Great guests on today's show. We've got Mark Bowden, who is the uh, the author of Black Hawk Down, and uh, he's also a, a national correspondent at the Atlantic and a corresponding editor, contributing editor for Vanity Fair. And he's also got a new book out called Way 1968, uh, discussing the Vietnam War. But he also has a, has a cover story in the July August issue of the Atlantic, uh, discussing North Korea. So we're going to talk to him about that, and it's just an absolutely fascinating interview that both myself and Jeremy conduct, and uh, we're definitely excited about that. And also Taylor Bashotti from the NFL Network. She joins us for the third time on the show, and it's always great to have Taylor on. So two exciting interviews uh, for our audience today to celebrate episode 100. And we do have two more announcements for you. And the first announcement is kind of cool. And uh, you might remember one of our co-founders, Zach Taylor. Uh, We actually just received news that Zach Taylor is engaged, and he's getting married October 29th, which I'm going to point out is the day after the Baylor-Texas football game. Yeah, you know, that's kind of a Zach move, uh, having your wedding <laughs> in the middle of college football season. But to his credit, it's on a Sunday. It's not on a Saturday. Some of our other friends have committed that mortal sin of having their that's, that's wedding right. on, a sa- on a college football Saturday, and it's painful. But this is how Zach can redeem himself, and that is holding the rehearsal dinner at McLean Stadium, preferably at the tailgate. Or sweet. Or sweet. I, I think he could just run out the Baylor Club. Yeah. Um, lacking a financial support to throw behind this, morally, I can support this decision. So, Zach, do the right thing. <laughs> Zach, you should do the right thing. Uh, have the rehearsal dinner at McLean Stadium on October 28th. And, you know, I'm actually kind of uh, reminded by a quote from uh, one of my friends, uh, Randy Gonzalez. Uh, he's a great uh, musical artist up in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I'm probably going to get this a little bit wrong, but he once told me that 50% of marriages end in divorce. The rest get married in spring. So, uh, yeah, I mean, fall marriages, it's football season. But, uh, Zach, uh, congratulations to you, man. We're definitely excited. But uh, we have another announcement to make. And on episode 100, uh, we have a new sponsor. And, uh, Jeremy, do you want to tell us about it? Episode 100 of the Weekly Brew Podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a three-day free trial at audibletrial.com backslash weeklybrewcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or Kindle device. You absolutely crushed it. So we are uh, very happy to partner with Audible Books. And uh, on today's episode, episode 100, uh, we highly recommend that you go to Audible and you actually download uh, and and get Mark Bowden's book, his new book, uh, Way 1968. Or if you want, uh, pick up his older book, Black Hawk Down. Both are available on Audible and it's free. 
and audiobooks are cool now. They're not just something your grandmother listens to. <laughs> okay. I, I have audiobooks. I have no shame. I had to drop that a long time ago when I just didn't have time to sit down for an hour every night and read. So uh, it's a great way to get through some of the more exciting titles that are coming out, like Mark Bowden's book. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, that link to get the free book and the 30 day free trial is. Uh, Audio of the it's audible trial. I cannot speak today, but it's audibletrial.com slash weekly brewcast. Make sure to check that out. Uh, and Jeremy, we're just going to touch on episode 100 real quick, uh, a little bit more and just kind of reflect back on our past. But uh, if you're looking back at the last, you know, 99 episodes that we've recorded prior to this, uh, what are some of your favorite moments or some of your uh, favorite guests that we've had on the show? You know, as a Baylor Barry, it pains me to say that um, our favorite guest was Gary Patterson. Uh, the head coach of TCU football. Um, he, you know, having, of course, I'm a huge college football fan, but having him on the show, him talking about uh, the strategy for TCU that year, even though they actually didn't end up doing too well, they had a fantastic bowl game. Um, and so, you know, having him on here talking about the Big 12, talking about kind of what makes the Big 12 unique um, and, you know, the, the power conferences um, was just fantastic. He was He's an interview I will always remember. Yeah, he was pretty good. And then actually a few weeks after we had that, I was able to go up to Waco and interview uh, Jim Grobe right before the Baylor football season. So that was a lot of fun just to be able to get, uh, you know, two Big 12 head coaches on the show. That was that was an absolute blast. But if I'm, if I'm looking at, like, some other guests, we've had some great guests. We've had uh, Jeff Van Gundy. We've had Daryl Morey. We had Larry Durker here in studio. Uh, but we've also had some fun guests, too. I mean, Brooke Evers, who we had, I think, on, like, episode episode 22 or 23, somewhere around there. Uh, you know, of course, international model, Ozzy DJ. She was here in Houston. We actually got to party with her, hang out with her, talk with her uh, after she came on the podcast. And so I, I don't know. It's just fun to be able to talk and meet with so many different interesting people that have so many fascinating stories. And we got to do another one this week with uh, both Mark Bowden and Taylor Bashotti. Absolutely. And let's not forget the other guests we've had on the show. We've had Matthew McConaughey. We had Absolutely. Tim Kirchin crawling around on the floor of your apartment looking for crumbs. <laughs> because he was hungry. Um, so no, this, this, this podcast has had some, some, some of the more memorable moments I think have been um, unscripted yeah, and absolutely. with guests that just happen to show up out of nowhere. Absolutely. Courtesy and of Hunter Atkins. Yeah, Hunter Atkins does a hell of a job doing impersonations. And in fact, if you go and look on, uh, I, I believe the Chronicles website, there's a link to uh, Texas Sport Nation. He did a, uh, a great impression last week on the Sunday night show of uh, Doc Rivers. And it was just, uh, it, it, was, it was hilarious. I highly recommend checking that out. You can also follow his Twitter handle at Hunter Atkins 35. But uh, let's go ahead and get into the big storylines uh, real quick of the week. There are going to be two sports that we're going to talk about and one news related. Uh, the first one, uh, Supermax extension on uh, Saturday was given to James Harden and uh, it's essentially extending his contract through the 2022-23 season and he's going to be paid $228 million. And if you put that on top of his Adidas contract, which you got a few years ago for $200 million, this is a guy that's 27 years old and is already worth half a billion dollars. I, I, I got to say that this year, it was a little bit disappointing to see the Rockets lose in the fashion that they did against the Spurs in the playoffs. But uh, Jeremy, with the, the moves that the Rockets have made in the past you know, week, week and a half, uh, and, and then signing James Harden to a contract extension, does it kind of get you fired up to see you know, what Daryl Morey has done and what Les Alexander, uh, you know, has signed the paychecks to position the Rockets for long-term success. I mean, I'm, I'm excited they have that much money to hand out. Man, <laughs> what would it be to be just um, like the ball boy for the Rockets? 
Um, so, uh, you know, I, I look at what J.J. Um, Watt was paid for the Texans. Yeah, which $100 million. Was $100 million, yeah. incredible amount of money. People were like, was the highest, play, highest paid defensive player of all time? And we were like, he's worth it, like undoubtedly. I, well, I think we actually said that he was probably worth more. Yeah, he was worth more. But, you know, and, and what did he do the next day? You know, he showed up at like 4 a.m. for workouts. I mean, the guy is incredible. But, you know, switching over to the Rockets, James Harden, I mean, is he worth that much money? I mean, that's, I mean, the Rockets have some pretty deep pockets, but, but my question is, I guess with, you know, the, the Rockets not making it further in the playoffs than maybe a lot of us would hope, is he worth that much money? And especially with um, some new players coming on the team, Chris Paul, and then this talk about Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony, you just signed P.J. Tucker, so there's a lot of talent here, and I think the Rockets have probably already upgraded their roster, but I mean, to your point, you look at James Harden last year, he averaged 29.1 points a game, a league-best 11.2 assists, and 8.1 rebounds per game, uh, but his salary, like you said, it's just astronomical. Uh, this next year, he's going to make around you know, $37, 38000000 million, but at the end of that contract, in 22-2023 season, he's going to make nearly $47 million. That's an insane amount of money but if he brings a championship to the rockets les alexander has said i'm gonna sign the checks i want championships and he's making you know millions and millions of dollars uh with the rockets organization so i don't blame him for wanting to do this but uh, something else that i thought was interesting that he said obviously it's going to be uh, fascinating to see what happens with chris paul because you have two of the league's top you know five point guards uh playing on the same backcourt that to me is going to be uh, just something that we haven't seen before and i think mike d'antoni is the coach built for that uh you mentioned carmelo Anthony. He's a guy who is not happy with the Knicks organization right now. They just let Phil Jackson go. He wants to be a Rocket. Do you want to see him in a Rockets uniform? I, I got to ask you, uh, who's going to pass the ball? Who's going to between <laughs> that's, James that's Harden, Chris Paul, and Carmelo Anthony? If he were to be a Rocket, who's going to pass the ball? I mean, I, I think James Harden has uh, he, he, he's a valid claim to be a ball hog, but some of these other guys, I mean, are they going to play as a team? Are they going to play as a team, not just as a team, but a team that can win playoff games? Well, I mean, that's a fair point. We see this, you know, trend with that was started with LeBron James going to Miami a few years ago. You had Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade. Uh, that was the first super team. And then, of course, uh, LeBron going back to Cleveland. Uh, he had Kyrie Irving. He had Kevin Love. That's another super team. And then, of course, what we've seen with Golden State, that's another super team. You've got four perennial all-stars, uh, two league MVPs on that roster. And, you know, with Oklahoma City making a move to get Paul George, that's another deep team. San Antonio is always a threat. And I, I feel like the Rockets want that third superstar. And I don't know. I, I think you look at it this way. Carmelo Anthony is going to play Ryan Anderson's position. And Ryan Anderson was a great signing by Daryl Morey in this past offseason. Uh, he was definitely a threat from long range, uh, a little suspect on defense at times. But Carmelo Anthony, he is probably one of the most gifted shooters in all of the NBA right now. And of course, he hasn't won a championship uh, since he was at Syracuse as a freshman, but he's a guy that last year averaged 23 points a game, uh, nearly six rebounds, three assists. So he did, like you said, he doesn't pass the ball much, but I think he wants a championship. He's getting up there in age. Uh, he's seen Kevin Durant get one, he's seen LeBron get one. I think both him and Chris Paul and James Harden are hungry. They've, they've played together on the Team USA Olympic team. I think they're going to be not as selfish with that pursuit of knocking down and dethroning the Golden State Warriors. Uh, do you think it's worth it? I don't know. Um, 
I'm reading an article here from Yahoo Sports talking about the tension between Mike D'Antoni and Carmelo Anthony and t- saying, oh, yeah, I think we can put aside our differences. But I, I don't know. I, I, to be, to be, you know, I'm not the NBA guy, but at the same time, like, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering with, the, you know, the egos on the team, are they going to be able to shrink enough for the team to and gel? That, and that's a very fair point because what made the Rockets so successful this year was not only James Harden, like his play at the point guard position, but it was a team chemistry. And we've seen chemistry be so successful in sports. I mean, just look right across the street at Minute Maid Park. The Houston Astros have probably one of the the best team chemistries in all of baseball from just the looks from the outside. I mean, we don't know the ins and outs of what's going on exactly in the clubhouse, but chemistry is what can help you win a championship. That's why Golden State has been so successful. So I do think that's a fair point is will this impact the the overall chemistry for the Rockets? And I guess we'll have to wait and see on that. But uh, very interesting as the uh, the Rockets, Daryl Morey, Les Alexander, are making the moves to, to position the, lo- the Rockets for long-term success. But uh, speaking of long-term success, you've got to also think that the, uh, the Houston Astros are set up for long-term success. Uh, currently right now, as we are at the All-Star break, they've got more than a – they've got a double-digit lead on every other team in the American League West. They have the best record in the American League. Uh, they're actually sending six Astros to the All-Star game, which is the most ever sent by the club. Previously, that was five uh, back in the 1994 season when actually a past guest of the Weekly Brew podcast, Doug Drayback, was one of those five. But uh, Chris Davinsky was added to the roster uh, late last week. And uh, Jeremy, I-, I know we're at the All-Star break right now, but you're actually getting a little bit excited about the baseball here in Houston. I, I know that you purchased an Astros Colt 45s hat. Uh, I mean, from a person that doesn't necessarily live and breathe baseball like I do, tell me, I, I, I'm curious from your perspective, uh, is this team exciting you enough that you're going to want to go out there and support them in the second half of the season? I, I really think you're, you're overblowing uh, the degree to which I care about baseball. Baseball, <laughs> to me, is like the junk mail on your dinner table that you don't want to Harsh open words. up. That you don't want to open up because you know it's just junk mail, right? It's not really interesting. Like, oh, maybe there's a new credit card offer that I don't need. Yeah, okay. That's kind of like what baseball is to me. But with, uh, you know, as I said last week, you know, playing the Yankees was kind of a, an awakening for me. And, you know, I did play Little League as a kid. I peaked at like eight years old, and that's neither here nor there. But the point is, I, I, I did get more interested in baseball, and I'm really excited to see where the Astros go heading into um, the rest of the season. And I was a little, you know, in Austin, as a, as a layman in baseball, <laughs> I was a little frustrated with the performance against the Blue Jays. But as I'm hearing now, not everybody was playing. Right. I mean, you don't have your you don't have Dallas Keuchel back. Uh, Altuve took the game off on Saturday. George Springer looked like the uh, American League All Star and potential MVP candidate that he is, going four four on Friday night, two home runs. Uh, he's just having a hell of a season, and I think the Astros are positioned very well to make a run uh, in the playoffs in the postseason in October, and hopefully we can have a World Series uh, series here in Houston in October. I think that's the ultimate goal, but I think the Astros still need to make some moves uh, as as we get closer to the trade deadline maybe bring in another starting pitcher because we've had a lot of injury concerns there maybe bring in a, a middle relief pitcher perhaps a lefty I think the offense is good I don't think you need to touch that but I, I, I do think it's a really exciting time here in, in Houston and you had mentioned that you peaked Little League Baseball when you were eight years old did you see this story this past week out of Dallas Fort Worth there's like a uh, a select baseball team. Uh, I, I cannot remember the coach's name, uh, but he runs like a, I guess an eight and nine year old select baseball team. Maybe it's like a 10 year old select baseball team, but this guy flies in kids from across the country. He's actually recruiting like eight and nine year olds, 
to play in a select team that live in like Mexico, the Dominican Republic. It, is, isn't that uh, isn't that like human trafficking? That's insane. Kind of like it's kind of human trafficking, right? I mean, like, you're 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 flying in children that are are nowhere near adulthood <laughs> to play on your baseball I mean, team. If you're a parent, like, what are you thinking? Like, putting your kid on a plane, getting frequent. I mean, the kids probably have like I don't know silver or gold status on like United or something like that or American Airlines. I mean, how how does this make sense? to do this for select baseball. I mean, when we grew up, you, I mean, you were, uh, you know, eight years old playing here in Houston. I was playing up at the Woodlands. I mean, we had our own little leagues. We, we, I, I, the baseball fields were right across, you know, the street from me. I mean, that's insane to fly to a game at that age. I, I know. And, and, and think about, you know, with all the money this guy has to fly kids to and from his games. Can you imagine what the spreads are like after <laughs> they win a game? Like fidget spinners for everybody. Like hot dogs, pizza, the whole thing, like Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know if kids still go to Chuck E. Cheese. That's what I'm guessing. They're, they still exist, so I assume that children go to them. But, I mean, like, it just it, it boggles my mind. I mean, whatever makes you happy, man. But it's just like I can't get around the idea of spending money to fly in eight, nine-year-old kids for a little league team. I mean, there's, there's one thing about being competitive. I think this guy has, like, taken it entirely too far. Yeah, just just my thoughts. What, what what was the like the uh, the quote from the article here? You're selling your son's soul for a six dollar trophy, hey, but they could be national champs at ten years old. I guess so. Absolutely, it's totally worth it, right? Is is, is this the the kind of team that would play in the little league championships, like the like the world championships? No. Okay. This is you know these are select teams like similar to AAU basketball. Okay. Right. Okay. It's it's you know they go and, and play different tournaments across the country, but they're not actually little league. So it, it's kids, but they're playing select baseball. Like little league is a win where you can go to Williamsport in Pennsylvania and play in the little league World Series in like what is it August each year. Uh, but this is not affiliated with that, and I, I think it would be very out of line to be recruiting players to play on your community team in the little league. But hey, who knows? I wouldn't put it past this guy. Yeah, I mean, whatever makes you happy. I'm, I'm sure the kids are enjoying the time, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if I was a kid being able to fly across the country playing baseball, I would think I was a professional athlete. Absolutely. This actually sounds like the premise for a really bad made-for-TV Disney movie. It could be. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's this guy's whole premise. Maybe, I know, maybe right? Maybe he wants yeah, like a million-dollar Disney contract. Yeah, he's sell, sell the script to the Disney Channel because the ratings are cratering right yeah. now. So if you're listening right now, uh, the coach's name is Esquivel. Uh, you know, Call us. We've got the the story idea. We will work with you to get that on the Disney Channel. But uh, let's go to uh, our last topic before we get into the two interviews with Mark Bowden and Taylor Bashotti. Uh, and that's CNN. Uh, Jeremy, we've kind of discussed it a little bit via text message this week. But uh, last, what was it, Friday or Saturday, Donald Trump sent out a, uh, a tweet. And it was uh, a, 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 kind of a, a short video clip of him uh, when he made his WWE appearance several years ago, and uh, he was essentially clotheslining Vince McMahon. Instead of Vince McMahon, uh, the CNN logo was superimposed over his face. And of course, uh, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was funny. Uh, I thought it was probably unprofessional and not presidential for uh, the the leader of the free world to put that out on his Twitter account. And you know, a lot of people kind of rolled their eyes and. There was a little bit of backlash, but it should have been a non-story. Well, and and to to your point, it should have been a non-story. You know, I, I think uh, critics of the media would say they don't have a sense of humor about this. Of course, the media wanting to focus on itself made it about them, saying the president was endorsing violence, which against is ridiculous. Journalists, which is ridiculous, because the same news media also said that the shooter who shot. Uh, Rep Scalise, Steve Scalise, who's still in intensive care, who had surgery this past Thursday or Friday, 
they said that that shooter, you know, they said that the politics behind that shooter wasn't political, like it wasn't promoting violence, which clearly it did. But yeah. they're saying this this right. meme was promoting violence, and then CNN kind of took it one step further. Right, right. And I, I think it's there is a little bit of irony there. Um, the, the Steve Scalise issue aside, I think um, what happened, what transpired. Um, after Donald Trump tweeted this out is what's so funny, and that's uh, Andrew Kaczynski, um, K-File, as he's known to CNN or his Twitter handle, he went and actually tracked down the creator of the GIF, or GIF, or whatever you call it, and uh, the guy was a, a Redditor, or I guess he was a, a guy on Reddit named Han Asshole Solo, and uh, I guess that he found this guy and then uh, decided to write up an article threatening to publish his name unless he get in line. Actually, I'll read the quote for you. Um, CNN is not publishing Han Asshole Solo's name because he is a private citizen who has issued an extensive statement of apology, showed his remorse by saying he has taken down all of his offending posts, and because he said he is not going to repeat this ugly behavior on social media ever again. The article also stated CNN reserves the right to publish his identity should any of that change. Of course, most people would read that and think it kind of sounds like blackmail, which is, is exactly what the internet did. And, and subsequently, there's been this huge meme war between people who run Donald Trump fan pages on both 4chan and Reddit against CNN. In fact, um, I was looking today, this, this whole thing, I mean, unless you're really looking for it, it's not there. But like, if you went to the CNN um, app in the App Store today, it's at a one star in every single review is just hilarious. It's like a parody of um, something out of a script from like South Park. It's just hilarious. So uh, CNN really uh, took something that could have scored them some points against Donald Trump and completely folded over. So I, I don't understand what CNN was doing behind this because, I mean, you look at it. CNN is going to try to protect their sources at all costs, right? And then here they are trying to expose the guy for uh, being critical of CNN. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. What I mean, CNN says that, you know, that we need free speech and, you know, that people should be able to speak their minds. And I agree. I thought this GIF image was stupid. I, I, th- I thought it was funny, but I thought it was unprofessional for Donald Trump to send it out criticize Trump for making that decision. I don't understand why they have to track this person down and then threaten him. That, that seems like, I mean, that is blackmail. And it, to me, that reflects even, even more poorly on CNN. And CNN continued to double down. And they spoke about this like for four days after the tweet was even sent. I mean, that's ridiculous. A tweet like that should not be in the news cycle for four days. Especially if it's about you. And here's the problem. When did CNN become the morality police, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, threatening to expose somebody, threatening to you know, show someone's identity unless they get in line, that's a little scary. Now, what is funny about this is that even a lot of left-wing outlets, Vox, Newsweek, Slate, and some others, have called out CNN on this. And of course, they've tried to spin it like, well, people are misinterpreting what they said and, you know, um, in Andrew Kaczynski had his own version of what he meant, quote unquote, in the article. Um, Allegedly, the quote was from somebody in the executive team at CNN. But regardless, this came from CNN. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a misprint. And it just it's looked really bad for them. And Donald Trump once again has outdone the media and ended up on top of, you know, something that could have been. I think more negative for him heading into the G20. Yeah, absolutely fascinating to see just how social media has just changed the way 
we look at politics in the United States and uh, it, 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 the media has to adapt in some way. They have to, I think, you know, their, their, their approval ratings are so low. I think they need to try to gain back that credibility and not, you know, get into a little pity war that the president wants to create. Uh, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to create this, uh, you know, war of words between the networks and the White House right now. And I, I think that, you know, the media is, is the group that got Donald Trump elected. They continued to cover him in 2015 and 2016, giving him airtime. They helped him. Right. Well, and, and, and let's, let's be honest. Donald Trump helps the media. He is a ratings. It's a great He's a boon for ratings, but they've suffered in their reputation. I mean, trust in the media is at an all-time low if you look at if you look at Trust in the president polls. is also an all-time Yeah, well, low. I mean, his approval number is sitting around 40% last time I checked, which was earlier today. He's not, I mean, he's not the most popular guy, but in these squabbles with the media where he gets them to focus on themselves instead of what his administration is doing, you know, regardless of what you think about that. Um, it really just comes out. I mean, he's he's kind of a master of the art of diversion right. and um, just kind of replacing what they're paying attention to. You know, I I read an article this week about how um, the State Department is you know for is kind of being downsized, and that's something a lot of conservatives have wanted for a long time, and that's literally getting no media attention. That's something that liberals would kick and scream about, but they're focused on Donald Trump's tweets. While he's, you know, going behind the scenes through Pence and Mattis and Rex Tillerson and really, you know, affecting change in the administrative state. So, I mean, it's it's their loss if they continue to focus on, you know, these kind of fake news stories, so to speak. Yeah, we'll see what happens and continues to happen. But there's one other big story uh, this week, and that's North Korea. And, of course, we're going to have Mark Bowden, uh, author of Black Hawk Down and Way 1968. And uh, he's got a cover story in The Atlantic uh, this month that you can check out. It's the July-August issue. Uh, it, it's essentially discussing uh, how to deal with North Korea and, and what can be done. And Jeremy and I are going to speak with him for about 20 minutes. And after that, Taylor Bashanti from the NFL Network will join us on the podcast. We're going to talk all things from Texans to Pure Bar to uh, Life on the beach and a few predictions for the 2017 season and yes jeremy's kind of shaking his head he's like what pure bar yeah we actually talk a little bit about pure bar <laughs> but no, no, I, i'm just thinking about the time i got thrown out of a club called pure in <laughs> las vegas before they transformed it into the omnia yeah fair enough omnia great uh club in las vegas but uh we'll have both mark and taylor on here in just a few moments but we also want to remind you that you can follow our uh social media handles just search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube also you can subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And uh, we also want to remind you that we are now sponsored by Audible, and you can get a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash weeklybrewcast. You can get a free book, free download there. So we highly recommend that you do that. We also recommend that you uh, check out Mark's new book, Way 1968. But without further ado, we have a packed episode in front of you, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew Podcast is Mark Bowden, a national correspondent for The Atlantic and a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. He is also the author of Black Hawk Down and his latest work, Way 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam, is available now on Amazon's Audible.com, wherever books are sold. And Mark, thanks for taking the time for joining us this week. You're welcome, Austin. One of the reasons that we wanted to bring you on the show this week is because you wrote a very in-depth and compelling feature in the July-August issue of The Atlantic that uh, poses the question how to deal with North Korea. And for the last two decades, it seems that uh, the DPRK has always been a thorn in the side of the U.S. and its regional allies. But last week's ICBM test is sort of... I don't know, awaken the American public and perhaps signal that North Korea should be taken as a serious threat. 
why is it that the American public and to a lesser extent the mainstream media has ignored the hermit kingdom for such a long period of time? Well, I think that, you know, the way our media works is it gets all excited when something new happens. And the fact is that, you know, this stalemate has been in place and actually kind of deepening and worsening for many, many years. So when some, nothing happens over a long period of time or very little, um, particularly think something that has the direct impact on the United States, the press in the United States, I think, understandably, kind of gets moves on to other things. So, you know, this newest launch has refocused everyone's mind. When I think about who's concerned about North Korea, my mind naturally gravitates to its closest neighbors, namely Japan and South Korea. And it, it kind of seems like the impression I get from your article and just sort of reading about it is that they're not as concerned as maybe we think they should be. Well, they've been living with this threat for decades and you know it's grown worse but you know nothing terribly significant has happened um you know the the united states is reacting to the fact that now north korea is developing missiles that could reach the american mainland the threat that they pose to the united states and frankly that they will pose to the united states when they succeed in developing a nuclear ticked ICBM is really nothing new um, for South Korea and Japan. They've been living with it for a long time. Now, in your article, you specifically mention uh, four different, I guess, options for the U.S. and its allies, and that would be prevention, turning the screws, uh, decapitation, and acceptance. And I don't know, when I look at the current administration in the United States and, uh, you know, kind of bouncing off the article that you wrote in Vanity Fair a few uh, years ago that profiled uh, Kim, it looks like you almost have two unstable leaders. I mean, we don't know much about Kim. He's young. He's kind of rash. He's spoiled. And then with, with Donald Trump, we've noticed, you know, just in the short term of his presidency that he's kind of acted on emotion. We look at what happened with Syria with the uh, the chemical weapons that were used. I, I, I mean, what is the likelihood that the United States or North Korea is going to blink? I think that um, it's unlikely uh, because I have confidence on the side of North Korea that initiating conflict would be suicidal. And on the part of the United States, you know, my hope is that there are sober, uh, well-informed people around Donald Trump who uh, will succeed in, you know, keeping his whatever impulses he has um, in control. And so far that's been the, been the case. I, I don't think that... Uh, uh, that anything can happen. But when you have unpredictable leaders, clearly the chances of something exploding are greater. And and kind of thinking about that, when you're talking about unpredictable leaders, um, one thing I notice in, in having this discussion about North Korea is that Kim might be, you know, quote unquote, kind of um, what we would say maybe a crazy leader, but he's not stupid. How do you think that North Korean policy towards the U.S. has evolved under his leadership? Well, I like to say that, you know, I don't think that Kim Jong-un is crazy at all, although the Western media is fond of portraying him in that way. He is the head of a, what is, in effect, a crazy system. Uh, you know, the whole uh, logic and theory of the North Korean regime is fairly wacky and largely invented. But he represents the kind of leader who would you would expect to emerge from that system. And in that sense... 
he has been and is a fairly predictable character. The things that he's done since becoming the leader of that country have been fairly consistent with what someone would do trying to consolidate their power. And the and the strategy that they've um, uh, adopted toward South Korea and the United States, which is to develop the capability to make any effort to come after them very costly, has been extremely consistent over, frankly, generations. It goes back to Kim Jong-un's grandfather, his father, and now him. So I don't see it changing anytime soon, but I also, at this point, don't find it terribly surprising or alarming. One of the other things that you mention in your story in The Atlantic is uh, the impact of China and how they are essentially the only you know, country that can put that pressure on North Korea from an economic perspective. And, you know, obviously we want the United States wants China's help with North Korea, but at the same time, the United States is also applying significant pressure on them for their ventures in the South China Sea, which, you know, likely doesn't encourage them to cooperate with the U.S. And uh, my question for you is, is it possible to pressure China on the South China Sea while still getting their assistance with North Korea? Or should we, you know, kind of drop that issue altogether as a sign of goodwill? Or, you know, as Donald Trump has perhaps suggested, maybe the United States acts without China's help? Well, I think that you know, there's, I think if the, the options that the United States has without any cooperation with China are fairly limited. I mean, and in fact, any steps that the United States would take unilaterally, we're not talking here about military steps, but uh, economic sanctions, any steps that the United States would take unilaterally could readily be offset, I think, by, you know, in changes in China's or Russia's attitude toward uh, North Korea. So I don't see them myself <clears throat> being terribly effective. The As far as China is concerned, I mean, it's a big enough country with very broad, wide-ranging interests, and I think it is entirely possible that we can be pushing back on one aspect of China's policy while uh, cooperating with them on another level. I, I think that happens between big powers all the time. Now, Mark, one of my questions, one of my burning questions about the China-North Korea relationship and how it relates to our policy in the region is I've always wondered, you know, this this idea that we need to depend on China to deal with North Korea. I've always wondered, does China have the leverage that we think they do? Or is that just sort of um, kind of a smoke and mirrors game on their part as kind of like a bargaining chip in our negotiations with them? I do think China has considerable leverage on North Korea. Uh, I don't know, um, no one does, whether they could successfully pressure North Korea into abandoning what has been, in effect, their primary, <clears throat> their primary national purpose. Uh, the purpose of this Kim regime has been to build up the military, build nuclear weapons, build missiles, and that is kind of the cornerstone of their um, defense and, frankly, their raison d'etre. And I, I, don't, I don't know that China could uh, pressure them enough to make them back down. But I do think that China is the only country, and this is because of sanctions that have been imposed on North Korea over the last 20 years, China is really the only country that does significant business with North Korea, and they could really hurt 
North Korea if they if they chose to. Mark, we are you know kind of our roots on this podcast have been discussing sports, politics, pop culture. But I, I, I say that we kind of have leaned heavily on uh, sports in the past, and uh, obviously there is a huge sporting event coming up in 2018 in South Korea, and that's the the 2018 Winter Olympics that are uh, taking place. And uh, I was down in Rio for the Paralympics, and of course there was a lot of uh, concern about safety and security. Of course, when uh, the Winter Games were last in Sochi, there was concern about potential uh, Chechen terrorism. Uh, looking at the the Winter Olympics coming up here in, in February 2018, is there concern uh, from a security level uh, that North Korea might try to flex its muscle and, and cause alarm in that region during that time? I would, you know, I haven't heard anything about that, and and I don't really see that as a um, as a big concern. I think terrorism is always a problem um and you know so this you're always going to have um these kinds of worries but north korea i think has actually in the world of sports uh is the one place where north korea has been probably the most flexible and approachable in fact just a few years ago kim jong-un sent the highest delegation ever sent from north korea to south korea to attend a sporting event and I know that uh, recently President Moon, the new president of South Korea, has uh, offered to try to um, send a combined North-South Korean team to the Olympics. So while it's always possible, I don't see too many uh, warning signs of trouble there. Now, Mark, let me ask you, if we're going to look into the future here, say the near future for the U.S. 10 years out, where do we stand with regards to North Korea? Right now, I think, you know, we're at an impasse, and North Korea has steadily uh, continued to build toward its goal of an arsenal of nuclear-tipped ICBMs. It's been the policy of the United States, going back to Richard Nixon, to try to prevent uh, the development of nuclear weapons and now the development of ICBMs, and nothing has worked. Uh, I've, unless there's some major diplomatic breakthrough, um, I don't foresee us being able to prevent North Korea from building this arsenal. And, um, and I think that, fortunately, the uh, logic of assured destruction um, you know, argues very heavily against North Korea actually ever using any of these weapons. I definitely find the North Korea situation very fascinating, and we appreciate you discussing that. But uh, one of the things that we also want to discuss with you, Mark, is your new book that is out, and that's Way 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. And from my understanding, uh, you spent probably about five or six years researching this, writing this, working on this project. Uh, when Prior to releasing that book, can you kind of walk us through that process of what it looks like to research, going to Vietnam, developing these sources, these stories in order uh, to make your book uh, a success? Well, it is you know, kind of a daunting undertaking and the kind of thing that I'm really only able to do because I've been doing this for a long time. And I've kind of built up to the point where I kind of know at least how to approach a project like this. And for me, initially, it was uh, trying to digest the vast body of uh, work and documentation about this battle and about the Tet Offensive, about the Vietnam War. So a lot of reading, uh, a lot of researching, and then um, find, finding American veterans who fought there and beginning the process of interviewing them, which took place over a period of four or five years until you accumulate 
a fairly substantial number of overlapping narratives that begins to give you a fairly comprehensive view from the American side. On the Vietnamese side, um, you know, I was fortunate to hire a uh, translator, researcher, uh, fixer named um, uh, Don, what is his name? Ho Dang Hua, uh, Hua, who went to work in the archives in Hanoi and who is a former military officer who was able to sort of navigate the bureaucracy of uh, the, North, the Vietnamese government and help me find uh, veterans who fought against Americans during the Battle of Hue. So Hua did a lot of that work for me. And then when I traveled there first in 2015 and then again in 2016, uh, I spent weeks uh, interviewing um, the people who you see featured in the book. I had to arrange then to have um, a translator here in the United States, a Vietnamese woman, who transcribed and translated all those interviews. So that was, you know, the reporting piece of it. And then at some point, you know, the writing takes over and you begin trying to make sense of it all. You know, kind of comparing it with your uh, book, Black Hawk Down, which you released in the late 90s, uh, you didn't get to spend as much time over in Somalia just because of the security threat. Uh, but when you kind of look at the two countries, uh, Somalia still seems to be a, a hostile country. Uh, there's still a lot of... Uh, famine, poverty, whatnot. But Vietnam, since the war, has kind of evolved. It seems that it's more pro-U.S., if you will, that it's more open to Western culture and civilization. How, how would you compare, I guess, the lasting effects of uh, your experience in both countries? Well, I think, you know, Somalia continues to suffer from having too little government. And I think Vietnam, to some extent, still suffers from having too much government. But the government in Vietnam has uh, eased all of the economic uh, restrictions on the country. They allow entrepreneurship and private property ownership. So when you travel to Vietnam, what you see is a very thriving, bustling, growing economy uh, with people who are uh, prospering, uh, seeking education, seeking uh, employment, seeking uh, opportunities to start businesses and, and make money. It's a very exciting place to go and and visit. Uh, Somalia remains mired in, um, you know, uh, inter-tribal struggles and struggles with the Islamic fanatics and really lacks a coherent civil society, uh, which is what you need in order to establish a, a safe environment for economic development and prosperity. Now, Mark, kind of looking at your book here, I'd like to know in your research um, into the Vietnam War, in particular this battle, what lessons do you think that the U.S. can take and apply to its contemporary issues in Asia? Well, I do think that, you know, we have a tendency in this country to develop domestically uh, sort of political uh, theories or opinions that we project on the world. And the truth is that the world is infinitely complex. And, and we really, I think, uh, when we do things like the war in Vietnam, where we basically went to war on the basis of a theory of communist expansionism, this sort of monolith of communism spreading around the world that had to be stopped in third world countries, basically, I think, ignored the complex realities of Southeast Asia and of Vietnam. And as a result, you know, we found ourselves trapped in a fight allied with a regime that had no popular support or very little and uh, was corrupt 
and I think, uh, you know, was not going to be successful. The, the enterprise lacked the fundamentals of, uh, of being achievable, the goal that we had. So I think the reason that we lacked that understanding is that we let our sort of domestically produced theory of what was going on there um, uh, overcrowd our better understanding of of what was happening. Uh, so I think that's a lesson that we can learn. I think we should approach the world as a country uh, with a degree of humility, by which I mean we as Americans are less likely to fully understand what's happening in a particular part of the world. Uh, and we ought to you know, be paying careful attention to uh, people who have studied or lived in these countries who speak languages. We ought to be investing in our State Department more heavily because that's where we get that kind of knowledge, and, and frankly, also in our intelligence agencies. Uh, you know, to me, knowledge is fundamental in projecting American power around the world. Mark, we definitely appreciate you uh, joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast. And of course, you can check out uh, his work that we mentioned on The Atlantic. It's called How to Deal with North Korea. It's the cover story in the July-August issue. Also, check out his new book, Way 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. And and Mark, uh, you're a very busy guy. What do you have uh, coming up in terms of uh, work or what projects are you working on right now, if you can tell us? Well, I'm going to write an essay for The Atlantic um, concerning the issue of government surveillance. And I have a couple of uh, crime stories that I'm kind of eager to write uh, and, and do some reporting on. So I've got some magazine work coming. I've got the um, Michael Mann and Mike DeLuca are producing a miniseries for FX based on this book, Huey, and I'll be involved in that. So I think that will keep me probably pretty busy through the rest of this year. Very exciting times. And uh, for those that are interested in following your work, are you active on social media? Or what is the best way for uh, our listeners to connect with you? You know, I just say, you know, what I, when I write something, it's usually in the Atlantic, sometimes in uh, Vanity Fair. Um, but I'm not all that active on social media. I spent many years of my life um, getting to the point where I can write long. Uh, so I don't really have a very strong desire to write short. <laughs> I definitely like the uh, the long form literature in the Atlantic, and rather than the 140 characters, I think your work deserves that instead of the uh, the short words. But uh, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show this week. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it too. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew is a three time guest, and that's Taylor Bashani from the NFL Network. And uh, Taylor, it's the off season, but it's great to have you back. And as I understand, you just got back from Mexico, right? I did. Thank you. I'm happy to be back different type of environment around here during the off season so anything to help keep me busy i'm more than happy to do it (laughs) so i'm kind of curious are you lobbying the nfl to open up like an nfl network studios in mexico or are you still cool with la (laughs) no no just la i was actually just there for pleasure um (laughs) after the last week of june i started having time off and then basically have time off until training camp starts back up it's it's definitely different. So I started NFL Network last July. And so I didn't really get it. I mean, it was still new. So everything was just like stimulating and I, was, like, everything was new. So I didn't even know or realize that it was kind of dead last July. Like I kind of just didn't even realize it. But now that I was there and there during the off season, kind of once the draft, you know, Super Bowl, combine, draft, once that's over, it's just a whole different 
ambiance around the newsroom. I mean, people are constantly going on vacation. It's just, it's like the only time that the NFL has time off. So what do they say? They say the only holiday in the NFL is the 4th of July. Because <laughs> every other one is during <laughs> during the season. So I like it. It's great to have time off. But by the same time, I am chomping at the bit to get back and have football season pick back off. But, that, but that's kind of interesting to me because I used to work in college athletics. And, you know, we're working constantly through July through you know, honestly, the end of May and first of June, depending on how the baseball team does. So you're working essentially 10 to 11 months out of the year. How difficult is that for you? Uh, you know, where you're, you're grinding nonstop six, seven days a week, and then uh, all of a sudden you just have a month off with no huge events. Bizarre. I mean, because you get into such a routine of constantly having that daily grind and, you know, it doesn't even feel like work because you love what you're covering and you love what you're doing. By the same token, you are, you don't really realize it at the time, but you're you're, you're eating, breathing, and sleeping NFL football. So when it does just immediately come to a halt and you've got time off, you're kind of like, geez, what am I supposed to do with my time? Like, I should have planned a trip. <laughs> I mean, I did go to Mexico. I went to Tulum, went back home to Atlanta, which was the first time that I'd been home since. I did go home for Christmas for 36 hours. But other than that, that was the first time that I'd been back. So that was nice, but it's a little odd. You kind of feel like you should be doing something, but there's nothing to do. So... And, and I'm definitely you, ready to, for football season to get back. But you've yeah. taken up Pure Bar now, right? I did. You know, I. <laughs> that's funny you say that. I am scared of workout classes. The whole idea of going in there and, like, sitting in, like, a soul cycle class or any spinning class, for that matter, where they put your scores up there, and I just have this crazy fear of not being able to do it and being, like, the last one. And so my friend dragged me to Pure Bar class. And I actually made it through it. I'm not going to lie. I, I had like literally like jitters in my stomach beforehand. I, I was nervous. Um, but it was fun. It was, it was good. It was hard. You don't think that like that little bar will give you a solid workout, but geez, tiny little motions that they like zero in on these small muscles. And the next day I was so sore. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. So I have not done Pure Bar, but I know it's all the rage here in Houston. Uh, I'll just stick with, uh, you know, going to Equinox and just doing, you know, the machines. But No, I usually just run on the beach. That's all I do. So it was definitely a new experience for me, too, but I did like it. Well, unfortunately, we don't have beaches here in Houston. So I'm uh, kind of jealous of that situation. But, uh, you know, kind of pivoting over to football season, you know, we're just a few weeks away from uh, training camp. And uh, last time we had you on the show, uh, the Texans had just traded Brock Osweiler to the Browns. And there was... You know, heavy speculation that Tony Romo was Houston bound. Obviously, CBS like swooped in, hired him as their lead color commentator, uh, and then the Texans kind of you know shocked the NFL world. I guess you know trading up, drafting Deshaun Watson with the twelfth pick, and I'm kind of curious. I mean, I, I know it's the off season for you, but what is the buzz that you're hearing about Deshaun Watson and the Texans over at the NFL Network and just kind of among NFL circles? Well, speaking of the last time we spoke, I. I was 100% on board with the Texans going in and grabbing Romo. I, I thought for sure it was a perfect, ideal fit. And I was kind of shocked that he decided to retire. Um, but I guess that's the NFL. You can't ever really predict anything. It's impossible to. That's what makes it fun. But So now we're looking at a situation where it's Wilson or Savage. And my personal opinion is, is go for Watson. I mean, it's not a situation where it's, if he's going to be your franchise quarterback, it's when he's going to be your franchise quarterback. I think that them trading up and putting such a heavy down payment on Watson kind of proves their point that that's what they needed to do. 
and that's who they're relying on for their future. And I think they should. I definitely think that Watson will end up playing this season. I think that, you know, he'll quote, watch and learn and kind of take it all in and do his, pay his due diligence by waiting behind Savage. But I think by the third or fourth game, he's going to be, he's going to be put into the mix and I don't think he'll be taken out. And I think that's a very fair point that you bring up because when you look at Tom Savage, he hasn't really been healthy his entire time in the league. And, and so there's a lot of speculation that, you know, he might be injured in the second or third game of the year than Watson's going to have to come in. But when you look at the Texans defense, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of excitement. You've got J.D. Clowney, who just had a great year last year. Whitney Merciless continuing to excel. J.J. Watts back. So to me, it's like if you put Deshaun Watson in, he doesn't have to go out and win you games. He just can't turn the ball over. He has to be a game manager. Is is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I think that one big also advantage to kind of putting Watson in there early is one key thing with these rookies is getting those reps. And if you're putting him in as the starter during training camp, I mean, he's getting more of those reps, which is something that he definitely needs. Tom Savage, sure. I think that he has amazing attributes. I think he's got a strong arm. I think he's, he knows the offense well, and I think that those are advantages. But by the same token, I think that Savage looks like a different person in practice than he does on the field during games. It's, it's weird. I think that something just changes in live games, and he doesn't process the game quickly enough. He holds onto the ball too long and gets injured as a result, like you just said. And so I think that that is what's going to end up happening, whether or not he gets injured or whether or not it's just disappointing play. I think that they'll end up putting Watson in and letting him get acclimated. And I don't think it's going to be completely smooth, but I think that it's going to be the start of a, a franchise quarterback. I think in the ideal situation, Texans fans want to see him have the same success that you know Russell Wilson had with the Seahawks. It's, it's very similar if you look at the two teams. Seahawks had a great defense. He came in, was just a plug-and-play type quarterback. But uh, but when you look at what he did in college, I mean, he beat Alabama once. He torched them in another game, although you know they ended up losing. But w- when the games and the spotlight were the brightest, he came up and excelled. I mean, how much can we expect that to translate to the NFL level? That's a great point because I've read some articles and it says that Watson been said to display some of Tom Brady's traits in diagnosing a defense. And if you can diagnose a defense as well as Tom Brady, and if Watson possesses those traits, then that's already a great start. And it kind of makes up for his arm strength. So one of the big concerns regarding Watson is his arm strength. But listen, when you can diagnose a defense and pick it apart that well, it, it automatically will make up for it. I think if, if he can be uh, half the guy that Tom thing. Brady is, that's really exciting. <laughs> no kidding. Um, and I was surprised that he was even drafted at number 12. I thought that he would be the first quarterback drafted. I definitely think that he fell, and I don't think that he necessarily deserves that. Um, but it's great for you guys, and I'm glad that you guys got him. Um, I think that a mix of Watson with DeAndre Hopkins, who although he had a drop in production last season, I think that with Watson throwing to him, he'll get back to his 2015 self, and that could be a match made in heaven. Uh, that would definitely be really exciting. But another huge exciting thing, I guess, for the football team here in Houston is the defense. And like I mentioned earlier, J.J. Watt's healthy. How good can this team be on defense this season? And will the defense kind of allow them to contend with you know some of the better teams in the AFC like the Patriots and the Raiders? I think so. I mean, I think that they already have a strong defense. Add J.J. Watt back into the mix. I mean, 
what he played three games last season. Uh, Jadavian Clowney, stronger than ever. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see both of them on the field together and to see how they work out that dynamic because I know that Clowney kind of started coming in and playing a little bit of JJ's role last season. But now that he's back, he won't be having to do that. So it will kind of let him play to his strengths while JJ's playing to his strengths. And I could think it could be very dominant. Yeah, it's definitely going to be excited to see the the Bulls on parade and to see if the offense can kind of step up and uh, contribute as well. Uh, but I want to switch gears real quick to another team in the AFC South. And uh, you reported back in June uh, that Andrew Luck would not throw in minicamp. Is he still recovering from a shoulder injury? And I feel that that narrative hasn't been discussed much nationally. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny that you say that because I have been saying that all year long to my producers. I'm like, why is this not our lead of up to the minute? Why is this not our lead of any of our shows? Because it's, it's bizarre. And nobody's saying a word about it. Listen, I get it. Like, I get that you want to take the time and make sure that he's properly recovered and he's better and there's no risk in, you know, taking all the time that he needs. But by that same token, Coach Pagano said, he's going to be throwing in minicamp and then he wasn't. So like, it's like, I feel like his point of when he was supposed to be fully healed and recovered and throwing, it just keeps getting pushed back and back and back and nobody's talking about it. And I think that it could be an issue or it could just be, they're taking their time. With them. I mean, I guess, I guess we'll have to find out in training camp. Is it because I forget. Is, he to be, is he supposed to be throwing in training camp? I thought so. I mean, to me, it just seems a little bit odd because a few years ago, we we saw Peyton Manning have, you know, the, the pinched nerve in his neck. And obviously, that was a huge storyline. Every time you turn on the NFL Network or Sports Center, it was always Peyton Manning throwing the ball. And how does he look? Does he look sharp? Andrew Luck is arguably one of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL. He is the sole reason why Indianapolis has been competitive the last few years. And I just to me, it's baffling that this is not a huge storyline. And I guess my question for you is, what does this mean for the AFC South? And if, if this was hypothetically Tom Brady having uh, not not throwing, would this be more of a story? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think anything. I think if Tom Brady sneezes, it becomes a story. But I think that, I mean, unless he's recovering just completely on track, but it just doesn't seem that way. And so I just, I feel like nobody really knows anything to report about. And that's also another concern is why, why doesn't anybody really know anything about what's going on there? I feel like everybody's kind of hush-hush in that organization in regards to Andrew Luck. And so what's the deal there? I guess nobody really knows. That being said, if he's totally fine, he's back to normal they're going to have a great season and the fact that there's going to be a ton of scoring going on with Andrew Luck and T.Y. Hilton working together. Yeah, I think if he's back and healthy, the AFC South could actually be a fun division to watch with, you know, the, the Titans emerging. If you're, if you're kind of handicapping things right now, who do you put as the favorite in the AFC South? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say, you know, I, I can't say the Colts because of Andrew. Like we don't know what his situation is right now. Um, tough one. I think the Titans look really good. I really do. They have a lot of tools. Mario's got a lot of tools. He's got Demarco Murray, Delaney Walk. Going to be one of the toughest teams to beat. I think. Um, I think that Mario this year becomes the newest elite quarterback. Um, that being said, I don't know if they're gonna. I think that. 
I think that they're going to have a great season, a great season, but then not make it all the way. And they'll see that as a setback. But I think that it's really just going to be the ground for the base of a great team for the next five years. Yeah, it should be fun to watch just the division after kind of a lull the last few years to, to hopefully see it kind of step up in competitiveness. But uh, really quickly, one of the stories that the NFL releases each summer uh, is the top 100 players list. And of course, Tom Brady checked in at number one, Ezekiel Elliott, number seven, J.J. Watt who I believe number 33. Uh, but Brady actually became the first player to be voted number one more than once. It was also the second time that the top-ranked player was not the reigning MVP. And I, I'm curious, uh, this is something that the NFL does each year, and what are your thoughts on the list? Did, did the players in the NFL Network get this right? I think so. I mean, I think that it's hard to not give it to Tom this year. Um, I think that Matt Ryan did have an MVP year, and his like performance, it was breakout. He did everything right, but at the end of the day, Tom was incredible. I mean, he... They now have the most rings. They now, he broke records. I mean, he came back from the biggest deficit in Super Bowl history. He did something that had never been done before. Um, and it amazes me because he still wants to play three or four more years and he's in his 40s and he doesn't look like he's slowing down at all. <laughs> um, I think it's well-deserved. As much as I hate to say it, I think it's well-deserved. He reminds me of another guy from uh, Atlanta, Julio Franco, who played until I think he was like 70 years old in Major League Baseball, but uh, still still being able to be competitive at this age and play at such a, a high caliber is quite impressive. But uh, last thing that we want to talk to you about uh, is, you know, we're notorious on the show for making terrible predictions. And we're hoping that you can kind of break that trend for us. So I want to do a little, <laughs> I want to do a little rapid fire for 2017. Are you ready for this? I'm ready for it, but don't, don't, don't put any money on what I'm saying because I'm the worst at predicting too. I think it's possible to predict it. All right, let's go. All right. Well, which two teams will we see this February in Minneapolis, and who wins the Super Bowl? You're gonna hate my answer because I am gonna say the Patriots, <laughs> and then I think, I think it's gonna be Patriots Cowboys. Oh, that'd be interesting. That would be interesting. All right. So last year, the Falcons came out of nowhere to win the NFC. Who will be the surprise team in the NFL this season? I think that the Bucks will actually be a surprising team. I think that Jameis Winston is going to have another great year. Uh, they edged out the Panthers last year. Panthers only had six wins. Um, they're a youthful team. They're high scoring, and they're definitely a team that's on the rise. They could be a big surprise. I think that's a pretty good pick. <laughs> Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I could be totally wrong. All right. Who is one player that is kind of flying under the radar this year that will become a household name by the end of the season? Derek Carr. I mean, he's already kind of a household name, but I think he's going to have a phenomenal year this year. I think that had Derek Carr not gotten hurt last year, their entire story would have turned out differently. So you... I think that there's, I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be on fire this year. Are you a little concerned that he's going to spend all of his money at Chick-fil-A and not be as productive <laughs> this season? I mean, who wouldn't? Who doesn't love Chick-fil-A sauce with those waffle fries? And also, who doesn't love those cookies and cream milkshakes? God, they're so good. <laughs> this is not a paid endorsement a for Chick-fil-A, but we definitely like, agree. would say something really, like, like hoity-toity, and he was just like, you know what? No, I'll be heading to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I like it. He's definitely a, a fan favorite now, but uh, okay, next question for you. Who wins the MVP? Who wins the MVP? I don't know. Aaron Rodgers, Mr. Hail Mary. (laughs) 
All right, what about the rookie of the year? But I think that Miles Garrett will. Seems like a really solid pick. Of course, he had a, a heck of a college uh, career at Texas A&M, suffered through some injury issues, but uh, he should uh, definitely help that defensive line for the uh, the Cleveland Browns. But uh, Taylor, it is always great to have you on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And we talked a little bit before we started recording about social media. And I know your Twitter handle is at Taylor Bashotti, but uh, tell us kind of, I guess, the direction of where your Twitter handle may be going. You know, I don't necessarily know if it's going in a different direction, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not the best with social media. Um, I just, when I'm out and about and doing things, whether I'm even at work or with my friends, like the first thing that I think of isn't to go and post, I guess, on Twitter. And so I am actually one of my friends at NFL Network. Um, Eric Yee is going to be our social media manager. So I think that a bunch of bunch of our talent was assigned social media managers to kind of help us with posting more and kind of revamping, revamping your social media handles, as they call them. So, you know, it's a little odd, but by the same token, I really appreciate it because I could use all the help that I could get. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Taylor, it's always great to have you on. We definitely appreciate you for uh, joining us on the podcast this week. And uh, what do you have coming up as we get ready to training camp? Um, well, I'm just excited for training camp to kind of start. I'll be in studio, so I'll be here. Anyway. But once that starts, that's when I will be back to a full schedule. And so summer vacation is over until next offseason. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I am very excited for it. Just it's weird kind of going from going 100, mi- going from 100 miles an hour to zero. And that's kind of where I am right now. But it was a great break, and I'm ready to get back for the next season. Yeah, well, we're excited for the season as well, and uh, you can also watch Taylor on the NFL Network uh, and also follow her on Twitter at Taylor Bashotti. Taylor, it's been great. Thanks, Austin. Closing time. Wow, we just had two phenomenal guests for episode 100 of the Weekly Group Podcast. Thanks again to Mark Bowden and Taylor Bashotti for joining us on the show. And uh, Mark, great conversation on North Korea. And of course, Taylor uh, really brought it with the NFL discussion. Yeah, I'm actually a little jealous I wasn't on the interview. Um, she really knows her stuff. Um, I'm, 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 I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, like seeing what uh, what you guys can talk about potentially in the future. You know, just talking about the NFL and really what it means to the city of Houston, the Texans. Yeah, um, hoping to bring a Super Bowl here, uh, you know, with Deshaun Watson at quarterback. She was very high on Deshaun Watson, very high on the defense here. And, uh, you know, but she she did say that the Patriots, Patriots and possibly the Cowboys would make it to Minneapolis for the Super Bowl. Uh, but we'll have more from Taylor uh, a little bit later on as uh, we get closer to the, uh, the NFL season. Uh, she'll be joining us a little bit more frequently in the fall. So we're definitely glad to have her. But uh, Mark Bowden. North Korea. Fascinating discussion. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, Mark and I, you know, might not agree on everything, but his analysis of the situation with North Korea and the United States is spot on. Um, You should check out his article in The Atlantic, How to Deal with North Korea, if you have a chance. Um, And just he has some fascinating analysis about kind of America's role in world affairs really since Vietnam. And um, it's just a fascinating interview about kind of the different options we face and how none of them are really great. And so I thought that his, his analysis was spot on, really enjoyed the interview, really fascinating guy to talk to, you know, in these interviews, you always kind of hope that they enjoy talking to you as much as you enjoy talking to them. But um, I'd like, I'd like to think that he enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. I I mean, it was, to me, it was fascinating. Um, I, I've always enjoyed 
international affairs, foreign affairs. Uh, you know, I was an international studies political science major at Baylor. Um, I've always had a passion for what's going on in the world. That's kind of why I like to travel. Um, you know, that, that's part of the reason why we're going on a trip to uh, Europe in November. It's just to see the world, to explore what's out there. But North Korea right now, and just that whole region with South Korea, Japan, China, Russia, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there, there's so much stuff going on. We see that the U.S. is, you know, they're, they're going to do mi- uh, missile tests with their THAAD missile defense system. Uh, the United States has said that, you know, the missile shield might not be completely ready to handle North Korea to be able to protect South Korea or Japan. So it comes down to, can you actually put pressure on North Korea? And I thought you asked a great question about, you know, Will North Korea actually listen to China? And we saw through the G20 summit this past week, uh, Trump did talk uh, to the Chinese, but we've seen the Chinese just be a little more and more restrictive with, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong. I mean, 20 years later, after uh, Hong Kong uh, was handed over from the Brits, they've tried to be a little bit more restrictive. Uh, China is essentially moving away from that two systems, one country, to they just want one system, one country. And that kind of makes me wonder, will China even do anything to mitigate any potential crisis on the Korean Peninsula? Well, and that's so it's a complex issue. And actually, you know, in reading Mark's article and and, and thinking about the interview, you know, he presents four scenarios for the United States. They're kind of graduated levels of involvement, ranging from full on invasion to, you know, decapitating the regime to just accepting the fact that we're going to have a nuclear armed North Korea. There is a fifth option, though, that I've been researching and reading about, and that's um, giving Japan nukes. You know, uh, post-World War II, Japan has been a fantastic ally of the United States. Um, we have military bases over there, and it would only make sense with their nearest neighbors being, you know, equipped with ICBMs. One of their neighbors, North Korea, not exactly being the most stable place with ICBMs. How would China um, respond? Well, and that's and that's really the question: is can can the Trump administration, through Rex Tillerson, leverage potentially giving J- Japan and South Korea nuclear warheads? Can he leverage that to get China to put pressure on North Korea? Because right now, China is enjoying the fact that North Korea is such a thorn in our side. You know, people talk about China as our ally, and they're really not. I mean, internationally speaking, their nukes are pointed at us, um, and ours are pointed at them and, 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 the, and the Russians. So this, this idea that, that the Chinese are this great friend of the United States, they're really not. And so I'm wondering, what are the next strategic moves for the State Department? Can they leverage, you know, potentially arming China's enemies in Japan, South Korea, and maybe even Taiwan? That would getting be, them- I, I think that would be... A crisis situation if, if you try to arm Taiwan. Well, and, and really it's about the threat because I know that, that China is not completely, while they love the fact that North Korea is a thorn in the side of the United States, they're not completely comfortable with a lot of the rhetoric that comes out of Pyongyang. And I know that, um, you know, with Kim Jong-un consolidating his power, it's essentially in his hands, the entire operation. I mean, he just, you know, Mark talked about how he just assassinated his older half-brother. I mean, there is literally no one to stop him from doing anything. And so I, I think what, you know, we're, we're just, it's, it's going to be a wait and see right now. But the, I think the latest indications from Tillerson are that they're, they're searching right now for a diplomatic solution. I hope that they do find a diplomatic solution. I, I, I mean, I think, as, as Mark pointed out in his article in The Atlantic, uh, which you can read uh, out now, uh, it, I mean, if there's war, it's not going to be good. I mean, millions and millions of people will lose their lives. 
And I hope there is a diplomatic solution. I, I think that's the best case scenario for all parties involved. Right. Well, let's not forget that Seoul is, you know, less than 50 miles from, from, right. from the DMZ. We have, I don't know, have 30 or 40,000 troops right. stationed over there. Um, so it, it's, it's vital to American interests that this in peacefully. But at the same time, I mean, um, this is a two-way street and North Korea's got a part to play. So, um, you know, praying for the best going forward. But um, it's certainly going to be interesting to look at it from, you know, as you said, kind of, you know, looking at it politically and from a policy perspective. Absolutely. And uh, it was a great conversation with Mark. We hope that our listeners enjoyed it. It was, uh, you know, he's such an intelligent person. He's such a great writer. Uh, he does his research. And uh, it was also nice to talk with him about his new book, uh, Way 1968, which is, uh, which you could purchase. It's it, it looks at the Tet Offensive and the Vietnam War and how kind of that changed uh, the narrative. And it, it was interesting to hear him discuss how he spent five and six years over there researching uh, and developing uh, this this you know great book that is now going to be a miniseries on FX. And uh, we highly recommend that you check that out. And if you want, you can check it out uh, by just going to Audio Trial Audible. I cannot say Audible. Uh, you can just check it out by going to audibletrial.com slash weeklybrewcast, and you can get that for free. But uh, yeah, Jeremy, I think episode 100, having two solid guests like Mark Bowden and Taylor Bishotti, that's a great way to celebrate. Absolutely. Fantastic way to celebrate, and I don't think we could get gone out any better. Absolutely. And so if you want to continue to follow our work, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But uh, Jeremy, it's been great uh, kind of reflecting on the past you know, 100 episodes and celebrating it with two big guests today. Again, we thank both Mark and Taylor for joining us on the podcast. And uh, Jeremy, it's always great to go one-on-one with you. Absolutely, Austin. Looking forward to the, to the next 100 episodes. Absolutely. Uh, here's to 100 more. Here's to uh, the past 100 episodes. And on behalf of the co-founder and uh, co-host of the Weekly Group Podcast, Jeremy Paxton, my name is Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 